0: So we're gonna continue with Shanti Deva and he's uh, getting into the the part that is really challenging now. Yeah So if your uh, self-centered thought hasn't gotten beat up enough, he's going to now tell you how you aren't important at all <laughs> in the way that you think that you're important. Okay. So, uh, yeah, get ready. <laughs> so let's start uh, with the visualization, of the lineage masters, who have all done the practice that we'll be uh, learning of equalizing and exchanging self with others, and who have all survived it, although their self-centered thought has not survived it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we can do the same. So we walk around all day and sleep at night and do everything with a very strong sense of I. Yeah, there's a, a me, there's an I here. And there's also my, there's an I that is the possessor of the body, the possessor of friends and relatives, of wealth, of reputation. So we're so used to this feeling of I and my that we often don't even recognize that it's there. We think this is just the way things are. But in actual fact, these... Uh, ideas, this, that leads to grasping at I and my, um, it's all a fabrication, it's all made up. when we look for this seemingly truly existent I that experiences things that owns things that wants things We, we really believe that such an I exists in the way that it appears to us but when we look for exactly who it is. Things get a little bit fuzzy. And we can't find, we can't locate something that we can say, this is me, or this is the my that possesses things. So when we are able to loosen this feeling of I and my, it becomes much easier to see that we and all living beings are the same in wanting happiness and not wanting suffering. That this wish is not just ours, it's everybody's. And so in that respect, my happiness is not such a big deal, and my suffering also isn't a big deal compared to uh, everybody's. And so with that awareness, we generate love and compassion for all sentient beings. Because they're just like us, and there's nothing special about us, which can actually be very freeing. And so with that, let's generate bodhicitta as our motivation for sharing the Dharma this morning. So I think it can be very helpful um, when there's something strong going on inside of us, some strong emotion, or we're totally fed up, we're totally frustrated, we're, uh, you know, we're dissatisfied, you know, those kind of things that we feel quite regularly. Um, You know, I'm disempowered, people don't pay attention to me, and so on ah uh, to just say who who's, who's the i that feels this yeah and uh, and to just sit there and say who yeah and then try and look in your body and mind separate from your body and mind see who it is who is thinking this thought or who is Feeling, you know, stressed, or feeling unappreciated, or feeling guilty, you know, who, who is it? Yeah, who? You know? And then when you start to do this, then the mind instantly responds, "I, me," and then you reply back, "Who?" Yeah, because we initially take. When the mind screams "I, me, mine," we just take that for granted and you know go on. But but let's ask a little further. Let's question a little deeper. Who who is this? Who wants this? Or Who feels this? Yeah, it, it gets quite interesting. So I won't say more than that. It's it's uh, leave it as a little search. That you can do. And um, yeah, very interesting what your mind comes up with. Because there's definitely some thought, I, but what does that refer to? We were, uh, we left it last week, week before, whenever our last session was. Everything is running into each other nowadays, for me anyway. Um, Yeah, where Shantideva is saying that, you know, when we really see the harm of um, the mind that is so full of desire, that so wants this and wants that and wants the other things, and how... Uh, that motivates us to do all sorts of negative actions, which then throw us into the lower realms. And then it's difficult to get out of the lower realms. It's not like, okay, you know, well, I'm, I'm born as one of the kitties at the abbey. That's not so bad. I can just curl up and catch up on my sleep. You know, finally, I didn't sleep enough as a human being at the abbey. Now I'm a cat. I can catch up. I'm asleep and everybody comes and pets me and tells me how wonderful I am. Yeah. And you you might think, oh, that's not so bad, you know. They say ignorance is bliss. You know, I'm ignorant as a cat. I don't have to worry about the political situation in the U.S. You know, I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about the war in Ukraine. Uh, You know, yeah, ignorance is bliss. Well, think again. Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult when we're born in the lower realms to to create virtue. I mean, the best chance we have is whoever is taking us for walks every day. You know, we circumambulate the Buddha statue in the garden, or people say mantra, and we can hear it. Yeah. But uh that merit is due to the power of the object, not through the power of the mind itself being virtue. Okay. So very very difficult. So we want to avoid that kind of uh rebirth. Yeah, because having the kind of uh rebirth we have right now is is really extremely rare. Yeah. And and it took us a lot of work in previous lives. To create the cause for this, so uh, that's not wasted. Okay, so Shanti Deva is saying, with that kind of awareness, then uh, you know you go out and go into retreat. Yeah. So remember, this is chapter eight. It's not what you do at the very first beginning of your practice. Yeah, you prepare for this for a long time. So when you actually go into long retreat, you have some result, you know, but, um, so he says, uh, they, uh, they live these, these practitioners who do this in joyful houses of vast flat stones, cooled by the sandal scented moonlight, fanned by the peaceful silent forest breeze, thinking of what is benefit of. Uh, is what is of benefit for others. Okay, so we like the first three lines. Well, maybe not. In vast stone houses, you know. I mean, unless they have central heating, um, you know. But the sandal-scented moonlight, peaceful, silent forest breeze. You know, no cougars, no elephants, no lions, tigers, and bears. Ho ho. Okay. So that's very romantic. That feels nice. But then what do you do when you're there? You think of what is of benefit to others. You don't think of, oh, how lucky I am. I get to go live in this very quiet, solitary place. No emails, no WhatsApp, no people asking me again and again to do this and do that. No, no rotas to follow. I am free of all of that. No, that's not what you do when you when you you know go to long retreat is, is sit there and rejoice at that. You uh you know you think of what is beneficial to others. So uh you know we don't have to wait until we're in retreat to do that. We should be thinking now of what is beneficial to others. Okay. Um And thinking of what is beneficial to others doesn't mean we ignore ourselves. I mean, we are just regular human beings with our own samsaric limitations at this moment. But what we can do is slowly begin to eliminate these limitations. But we can't expect ourselves to be Buddhas right now. Sorry, folks. Um, You know, so we have to create a lot of causes, but... We're very fortunate in, in having found the path to do that. Okay. And then 87 says, They dwell for as long as they wish in empty houses at the feet of trees and in caves, having abandoned the pain of clinging to and guarding possessions. They abide independent, free of care. Okay. So again, the, the, the beginning part sounds nice, especially if you're somebody who likes nature, you like camping, camping you know, okay, dwell as long as you wish in empty houses. Again, they have to be heated and aircon conned um, at the feet of trees, but with, without ant uh, hills at the, at the uh, foot of the trees, um, in caves, yeah, again, with nice soft cushions and a nice bed to sleep on, not the hard stone. Um, okay, but having abandoned the pain of clinging to and guarding possessions. Yeah. Now here we have to stop and think because our worldly life says, Oh, but clinging to and guarding possessions is worthwhile. All my possessions make me happy. Yeah. You know, I mean, your your central heating and your air con in, in your cave, I, I want those possessions. Yeah. And I'd like a little scooter to go down to town and buy things in, you know, when I feel when... You know the people who are supposed to be uh, bringing the groceries up to my cave uh, when it's wet and raining, and they don't come. I want to have a scooter; I can go down and and uh, get my own supplies. Uh, you know, but even you know, forget about being in retreat in our regular life. You know, oh possessions, the more I have, the safer I am. You know, possessions, money, indicates safety, doesn't it? Yeah. You need those things to survive in our society. And so we want them, and we want as much as possible. You know, and especially when we look and we're aging, yeah, we want to have enough money to support ourselves in old age. We want enough possessions so that we're comfortable in old age. Yeah, we don't know that we'll really make it to old age, but we worry about it a lot now and it occupies our mind a lot. Yeah. And I want possessions uh, too, because it makes my life very comfortable now. You know, I want physical comfort. I don't want, you know, to be uncomfortable. And, and also when I have possessions, people look up to me. Yeah. People know that I have a good job, that I have a good income, that I run a good business, that I'm money wise. Yeah. So I earn respect when I have money and possessions. Yeah. This is the way it is in the world, isn't it? Yeah. And we, we want that. So, you know, so much of our life is tied up in in possessions and here shanti devas saying having abandoned the pain of clinging to and guarding possessions but when we think about it you know clinging to and guarding our possessions and everything we have to do to get them is not necessarily a pleasant uh, activity is it yeah I mean, from the time you're a little kid, we're inculcated with you have to study hard so you can get a good job, so that you can make money, so that you can be comfortable. Yeah. So that you can, you know, have, be well off in your old age you know maybe help your parents if they haven't accumulated enough by then yeah so we we're, we're taught this for you know this age and uh, we never question it cuz you're a little kid and and also that's the way everybody thinks yeah but when you start to look how our whole life is uh is the the box we live in because it becomes a box yeah to get the education to get the job to get the money to invest it well to survive the economy going up and down and across um you know it, it's it's exhausting yeah it's exhausting because you never have enough yeah and when, when you have a hundred dollars, it's, Oh, if I had two hundred, you know, you have two hundred. I need a thousand. Yeah. You have a thousand. I need ten thousand. And the numbers keep going up, but you never reach a number where you feel now I definitely have enough to feel secure. Yeah. From now until I die. Cause you don't know when you're going to die. And what happens if I live to be 120? You know, not many people do, but I have that aspiration and I'm going to do it. Yeah. So I need enough money to support myself until I'm 120 or maybe 121. That's more auspicious. Yeah. Or maybe a little bit older than that. Yeah. And so there's no limit. To how much you need and what things you need to have. Yeah. Because if you live to be 120, every object you have now is going to be obsolete. You know, your modern iPhone is going to be in a museum by the time you get to 120, because they're going to have all sorts of other things, like virtual reality, where you put on a, a pair of glasses, and then you can be in Amitabha's pure land be in this life before even going there, Uh, because they're going to create a virtual reality, and... You'll hear Amitabha, you'll see, you know, uh, His Holiness, you'll see Amitabha, you'll see Nagarjuna, you know, you'll feel the soft breeze, and it's all going to be virtu- virtual, you know, by the time you get to tw- age 20. So for, you know, your, your current iPhone, you know, it's just like, yeah, like I said, it's going to go in a museum. Yeah. And young people are going to go look at that, you know, the way we go and, and look at, um, you know, the, the, uh, the ancient, uh, farm equipment, you know, from a hundred years ago. That's ancient. A hundred years ago is now ancient. Forget about 3000 years ago. Okay. And, and yet, you know, when do we ever have security? Yeah. It's impossible because we live in a changing world and everything is changing moment by moment and uh, we don't know what's going to happen. So this thing of, you know, possessions are going to make me secure. So, I, you know, that's the purpose of my life and I cling on to everything, you know. This is my... Th- even though it's hard to open, you know. My thermos, I'm going to save it because, you know, when I'm 108, uh, I'll I'll still need some hot water, yeah? And so, yeah, so I need this, I need this, I need that, I need that, I need this, I need this. We need everything, okay? And we never have enough, and we never are secure. Yeah, so Deva is saying, if you never have enough and you're never secure, why are you your, driving yourself crazy, trying to have everything you need and, and reaching some state of security? You know, you're trying to get the impossible. Yeah, because security does not come from possessions. Security comes from your internal dharma practice. But we've neglected the internal Dharma practice because we're so busy, you know, looking at the stock market, uh, tabulating, you know, our interest rates and where to mu- move all the money so we get more interest rates. And, you know, we're, we're doing all of this, so there's no time to do our practice. Yeah. And yet it's really, when you think about it, you know, when you're in an ever-changing world, isn't your own mind, your own mental stability, what's going to bring you peace? Because all the external stuff you can hold on to, and it only makes you more st- stressed to try and get it and hold on to it. Yeah? And then you have a reputation for being wealthy and having all these things, and then once you have that reputation, you've got to maintain it. You know who wants to be one of those people who was wealthy, and then your wealth vanishes when the stock market goes down. yeah, oh horror yeah, then then you're nobody and there was an article I didn't read the whole thing in New York Times about somebody. Who was a baroness, yeah, in Europe, from the very wealthy family, and uh, came to the u s and just wanted to live uh, with uh, anonymously and when they they found her, she had a stroke, and she just collapsed one day. she had no ID, she had nothing on her. um somebody found her in. In the lobby, you know, collapsed of, of a luxury apartment building and took her to the hospital. And she was a Jane Doe, you know, yeah. And it took them a while to figure out that she was actually from a very wealthy family. Yeah. But, you know, none of that helped her. I mean, and they didn't, they couldn't actually even find any family members. Yeah. So, a very confusing kind of thing. But, yeah, so does she have money or does she not have money? And and who's going to manage the estate and, uh, you know, sell the whole art collection so that she has the money to stay in the hospital? I mean, it becomes a whole big confusing scene. And, you know, y- you spend your whole life trying to be secure and... At the end of the day, you know, when you have a stroke, you don't know where you're going to be and who's going to be around and if people are going to know who you are. Yeah. And if people even care who you are. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, the richer and more famous you are, the more enemies you have. Yeah. Because people resent. Uh, the power that you have or resent the unfair distribution of wealth. Yeah. So why are we driving ourselves crazy about this? Okay. So in verse 87, Shandideva is saying, having abandoned the pain of clinging to and guarding possessions, they abide independent, free of care. Yeah, because when you don't have a car, you don't have car hell. Yeah, and when you don't have, uh, you know, a a phone, you don't have phone hell when it breaks. Yeah, or when your computer deletes everything. Yeah, kind of, yeah, people think Tantra is. Magical and mystical. I think how my computer deletes things that I didn't delete is much more mysterious than Tantra. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you look worried. You're, you're, you're huh? Did it delete more things? I have, yeah, it, you know, the sync system. Is is sinking, not? <laughs> it's not sinking this way. It's sinking this way. <laughs> so, okay, okay. Eighty eight. Living as they choose, desireless, having no ties with anyone. Even the powerful have difficulty finding a life as happy and content as this. Now, some people, many of the powerful are going to go, What? You know, you live without desire? You know, I mean, I've got to have, you know, my five golf courses and I've got to have my private jets. And, I, you know, they're talking about the rich and powerful here. You know, I've got to have all those things. How are these people being happy without it? And no ties to anybody. I want a circle of friends and relatives around me all the time telling me how wonderful I am, telling me that everything I do is so perfect. The way I vacuum the floor, you know, they they, they comment on it and tell me how wonderful I vacuum the floor, how wonderful I wash the dishes. I need praise all the time, yeah. And for praise, I need connection with people, okay. And I need this all the time, you know. And I vacuum the floor, and nobody noticed. And nobody said thank you. And nobody said how hard I worked and how I vacuum much better than everybody else does. So I don't know who I am. I don't know if I'm worthwhile anymore. Yeah? Anybody here want constant reinforcement of how good they are? Oh, there's a few honest people. Yeah. Yeah, just constant. Just, you know, we need somebody to comment about everything we do. You know, the way you use the nail cutter on your fingernails. (laughs) You cut them just at the right time, in the right shape. (laughs) You know, when you look at it, we get really picky. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, this is the kind of thing I like to do when I meditate on the faults of these things is I, I take whatever it is I'm clinging to and I, and I make it extreme like this because it's the same mindset. You know, I can't just say, well, I don't want praise about my fingernails, but I want praise about You know, you know, when I write a book or when I give a talk, I want praise. You know, uh, when I fix the computer, I want praise. Well, it's the same as wanting praise for how you cut your fingernails. You know, and I find when I, in my meditation, when I make the examples ever more absurd, it enables me to see how crazy that clinging and desire is because it's the same no matter what you're clinging and desiring to and so that then it helps to to relax the mind and laugh it's like yeah this is ridiculous yeah. and it's true our mind is often ridiculous isn't it yeah when you see the the things that we cling onto just yeah I may have told you the story. This is a story about reputation when I was in retreat some years ago. And, um, you know, and I was doing my mantra and the visualization. It was really nice. And then I started thinking, you know, my teacher has, I'm sure he has clairvoyant powers and he's seeing what a good meditator I am right now. You know? And then I just cracked up in my, in the middle of my meditation. It's like, how absurd that I want praise for, for that. I mean, that's like, you know, my teacher said, Oh, the, the way you dusted the shelf is perfect. <laughs> you know, so clinging to that kind of praise, it, you know, it's just absurd. And the thought of my teacher is praising me, that shows how little I deserved praise. <laughs> yeah, it showed how the mind was totally under the influence of attachment to reputation and trying to impress people. Yeah. So often when you, when you see what your mind's holding, then you see, not, not only is it ups, absurd to hold that, but it actually proves the opposite of what you're trying to get rewarded for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why so often, you know, when, when we're full of pride, we look really foolish, you know, some people are intimidated when they have, when they're with proud people, you know, cause the proud people appear so powerful. But when you look beyond, you know, the facade, it's really, um, it's really rather pathetic. Yeah. When you think of it, people needing that so much. Mm-hmm. Okay, 88, living as they choose. Does, oh, I did that one. Having no cho- ties with anyone. Even the powerful have difficulty finding a life as happy and content as this. Well, the, the powerful, do they have any time in their lives when when they have any peace in their lives? Because to remain powerful... You know, it takes a lot of energy. You need to work hard to impress other people. Yeah? And sometimes what you're impressing them over is foolish. Sometimes it's it's you did something magnificent. You know, oh, I got an Olympic medal. You know, and so you're trying to impress people by your Olympic medal. But that takes a lot of effort, doesn't it? Yeah. Can you imagine you just got done swimming and you're exhausted and they gave you this piece of heavy stuff to hang around your neck. And now you have to smile in front of these cameras and tell everybody, you know, how wonderful it is and, you know, and you're tired. (laughs) Huh? I mean, being rich and famous is not easy. You think of, um, you know, if you've read any history and you, you think of the lives of the kings and queens. Oh my goodness. The pressure on them, the politics lying behind their lives. They don't have any peace because, you know, in, in, times when they had kings and queens and like that, and nowadays modern pa- practic- uh, politicians too. Everybody is scheming, and you've got to keep ahead of the schemes, and you've got to figure out who are your friends and who are your enemies and how you're going to you know, thwart somebody else's schemes to take away your wealth and your status. And it's totally exhausting, you yeah? So when uh, Shanti Deva says, even the powerful have difficulty finding a life as happy and content as this, because their lives are constantly full of discontent. Yeah. I mean, if if you look at, at Putin, very good example, okay? Yeah. Donnie's getting a break these days. Yeah. So if you look, Putin, you know, He's head of Russia. But that's not enough. That's not enough, you know. He's head of a country that spans, what is it, 10 time zones? Or 11 time zones? You know? But that's not enough power. Yeah. So he needs to invade another country. Yeah. And he needs to threaten, you know, The Baltic states, I mean, the Baltic states now are paralyzed in fear because Russia, how many times in the past, has invaded them and taken taken them over? Yeah. And the Central Asian countries are trying to figure out where they fit in because for Putin, it's not enough. You know, and even he... He reconstructs the ancient Russian empire in all of its glory. Then he's going to want something more. Yeah. And more and more and more. You know, I mean, when, when Trump wanted to buy Greenland. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Did, did people know about this? Yeah. He asked. Yeah. He wanted to buy Greenland. So he asked how much it cost. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's no peace in the mind. So why do we crave that? Why do we crave that kind of life and status and wealth? And there's, I mean, you have very little security because of all the scheming. So you might not suffer as a peasant suffers by Suffer through poverty, but you have a whole other type of suffering. Yeah, whole other type that you know uh, people have a hard time seeing how the rich and and powerful suffer, but they they do. Yeah, eighty nine having in such ways as these thought about the excellences of solitude, I should completely pacify distorted conceptions and meditate on the awakening mind, meditate on bodhicitta. So again, Shantideva is saying, you know, you're seeking a peaceful lifestyle. Yeah? Now you have to do the work that, that that peaceful lifestyle gives you. Okay? Which is identifying and pacifying all of our grasping yeah so grasping of possessions at people at fame even at ourselves yeah. grasping the i and mine yeah and instead what are we to do think about how to generate bodhicitta okay so it it's not a question of giving up our desire and all the hassles that have that come with it, and then uh, you know looking for our own solitary peace and nirvana. It's not okay. I got rid of all my samsaric headaches now, but you know I'm going to realize emptiness, go into nirvana. That's it. No, Shandideva says meditate on bodhicitta. Why? Yeah. We go back to what he taught us in the first chapter. Yeah. And all the subsequent chapters, the kindness of sentient beings, the benefits of generating bodhicitta, how bodhicitta is good for us. It's good for others. It's good for the world. You know, so this is not a project to just get our own nirvana. Yeah. And, you know, when we chant on Wednesdays, you know, about, um, who I can't remember. I can never remember the exact words of what I chant when I have to say them alone. But, you know, whoever would leave their, their mother sentient beings in the hell of, in, in samsara and just look for their own happiness. Yeah. Draupad Gyalsa says spit on them, you know. So you spit on your, on your self-centered, uh, self-centeredness. You know, people read that and think, Oh, I'm supposed to go around spitting at people. No, you're not spitting at the people. <laughs> you know, Oh, I'm supposed to spit at all the arhats. No, you don't do that. Arhats are, are to be respected. But what we, we want to spit on is our own, um, motivation that says, Okay, I got rid of the attack all the craving i have a peaceful life i'm just going to realize emptiness ciao goodbye modest, i'm out samsara good luck everybody no we're not doing that yeah we we um we've seen the benefit of bodhicitta and we've committed to that yeah and we're not going back on our word you know we made a promise to all sentient beings we're not backing out you know because We have the integrity of, uh, valuing our own word and our own promises. If we don't value our own word, yeah, when we generated bodhicitta and said, you know, I'm gonna, when we, you know, generated aspiring bodhicitta, when we took the, the bodhisattva, if we don't really value our word, then, you know, how trustworthy are we? So it may take a long time to become a Buddha. But, you know, we're going in that direction, and however long it takes, it takes. Yeah? But we're keeping our word to the Buddhas and to sentient beings. Okay. So verse 90. First of all, i should so now we've gone into seclusion we're you know meditating on the uh, on the bodhicitta and you don't need to wait until you go into retreat to do that you know we should be doing it in the monastery too yeah because in the monastery or in the dharma center you're surrounded by sentient beings so it's not a question of getting away from sentient beings and then meditating on how kind they are when they're not around Okay, bugging you. It's to be able to meditate on their kindness, uh, you know, and, and see their suffering when they're right in front of you. Yeah, saying, I'm suffering and I need help. Okay. So it's, it's not a thing of, uh, escaping from sentient beings because wherever we go, we, exist in relationship to all sentient beings. So we don't have to be close to them to exist in relationship to them, okay? So there's sentient beings throughout this whole universe in other realms. We don't see them, we don't know them, but we exist in relationship to them because what we do will have an effect on them, yeah? If we generate love and compassion, yeah, it may not affect them in this life, but in future lives, when we're born, when we can directly influence them, we will have these minds of love and compassion to give to sentient beings. So the, you know, the way we influence may not come immediately, but it will definitely come. And so, while we're creating the cause, we're keeping in our mind, I'm creating this cause for the benefit of all these sentient beings. Yeah. So when uh, you know, lots of people write to us and they say, you know, my mother died, my father died, my you know, my dear ones died, and and I always write back, you know, amidst other advice and comments, I always say. Make prayers that in a future life, by the force of your Dharma practice in this life, when you are born near them in a future life, that you may be able to benefit them. Yeah, because that's the best way to repay the kindness. Yeah, you can do prayers for them and and so on now while they're in the bardo. But the real way to benefit sentient beings is when you're both alive and there can be the direct benefit. And so you, you know, you think, okay, you know, my mother, my father, whatever happened, I will benefit in them in this way uh, in future lives by, you know, doing my practice now and generating those excellent qualities, so that in the future I can be a direct benefit, okay? And I think that helps, you know, because when somebody, uh, you know, when a dear one dies, if you think of some way to benefit them, you feel connected to them in some way, even though who they're going to be and who you're going to be in a future life you know, you're not going to recognize each other and say, Oh, hi, I was your mother, father, son, daughter in a previous life 5,000 eons ago. Uh, you know, you're not going to recognize each other, but that, uh, that length, you know, will be there and the wish to benefit will be there. Okay. So first of all, I should make an effort to meditate upon the equality between self and others. I should protect all beings as I do myself, because we are all equal in wanting pleasure and not wanting pain. Okay, so before we go on to the other verses, yeah, we're going to go into more depth in this uh, meditation on equalizing self and others, okay? Because it's uh, it's the method that Shantideva is teaching here. But in later years, I don't have... Do I have? Okay, so there's a method of meditating on equalizing self and others. Um, I learned it first from Senchap Serkan Rinpoche. I'm not sure what the origin is, if it's from Tritram Rinpoche. Do you have any idea, the nine points? Yeah. Who? T- who a- Tritram Rinpoche? Yeah. Okay. I thought it might be from him yeah um but i received it from sancho Rinpoche. and for me this is like so powerful i have a very clear memory of sitting in that teaching and listening to it i mean that's how powerful it was and uh and also um i heard it a second time from his holiness when he was in arizona uh sometime i forget when um you know, But again, I know exactly where I was sitting in relationship to His Holiness. And it was a teaching on my birthday, and I thought this is the best birthday present I could ever have, you know? Okay, so uh, just a little bit of preliminary to this teaching. Uh, yeah, if we equalize and exchange self and others, yeah, uh, then... You know, we can we have the ability to make very clear assessments of situations. Our minds are not clouded uh, by confusion. Yeah. So we don't need Moes to decide what to do. Yeah. We don't need pujas for extra blessings. Um we don't need health insurance. Yeah, this is what, what Rinpoche was saying. Because Uh, doing the lojong, the thought transformation practice, it's not um, an issue of stopping the external problems. It's a thing of stopping the mind that dislikes the problem. Okay? When we do pujas, we're thinking that the puja will stop the external problem. Yeah. But actually... The the thought training practice is to deal with the mind that says, I don't want this problem. It should go away. Okay? Because that's our usual reaction to problems, isn't it? Why me? I don't want this. I'm tired of pain. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of that. I just want to be happy. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're looking for the magic wand. You know, who is it? Tinkerbell comes in with her magic wand, you know, and spreads the, the fairy dust and, and then the problem goes away. Well, no, Lojong is dealing with the mind that says that rejects the, that rejects reality. That's what it is. You know, when we have a problem and, and we're unhappy about it, our mind is rejecting the reality of what's happening yeah we're saying this reality is not satisfactory i deserve better now who are you going to go to complain to about why you deserve better in samsara because there's no operator uh, external operator of samsara who's going to change it for you you know there's no external savior who's going to sweep down and save you. Because if there were such a thing, that external savior would have already done it because they're so compassionate. compassionate. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is coming back to our mind and how our mind creates the problem and our mind solves the problem. And that is... You know, we keep coming back to that, and that's still really hard, isn't it? Because whenever we have a problem, we want the outside to change. Yeah? I don't want this pain, whether it's mental pain, physical pain, worry, anxiety, who knows what, I don't want it. It should go away. Yeah? But it's our berserky mind that that is the actual source of it. Yeah? And so we keep coming back to there's no other way but to deal with our own mind. Yeah? As much as we would like to pray and think some external being is going to sweep down. Yeah? Yeah? I mean, we look at at, at Chenrezi up there with eleven heads and a thousand arms. And yes, Chenrezzi sees my suffering. Why doesn't he grab me? I don't even want all thousand arms to grab me. Just one arm will grab me and take me out of this mess that I'm in. Yeah. Why doesn't Chenrezzi do that? Yeah. Well, because he can't, because the in, the power of the enlightening activities of a Buddha is equal to the power of our own karma. Yeah? And if we're not purifying, if we're continuing to stack on negative karma, then, you know, the holy beings have so much compassion, but what can they do? They can't teach us. And teaching us is the way that they actually benefit us. Yeah. What do you expect? Chenrez is going to pick you up, you know, with one of his thousand arms and then go, Oh, what do I do with him now? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And what are you going to say to Chenrez? He's going to go, Okay. I, I got you out of that jam. What, what do you want now? And you don't even know what you want now. Do you? Yeah. I just want to be free of that problem. But what do you want? Yeah. Where am I going to put you down? Genesi says, when you, you go, uh, I don't know. Because we don't, you know. So, when, when your aim is to generate bodhicitta and attain awakening, then you have some idea where you want to go if Chen Resi could put you down somewhere. Yeah, but Chen Resi doesn't pick us up and put us down that way because it's a process of changing the mind, not changing our location. Yeah. Okay. So, when we, you know, we think about equalizing uh, and exchanging self and others, it seems uh, really difficult. I mean, the Equalizing is, is hard enough, but exchanging self and others is like, that's, that's a step beyond me. Okay. But we can do this, um, through the force of familiarity, because through familiarizing our mind with another way of looking at things, then our whole attitude changes. Okay. And so we'll get into that, you know, because r- right now we, we think of ourselves as more important than everybody else. You know, and like, how can I not think of myself more important? Yeah. My therapist told me I've got to assert myself and claim on my importance. We're not contradicting your therapist. Deva isn't contradicting that. Deva is saying, do it, you know, if you want to stick up for yourself. Stick up for your ethical values, yeah. Stick up for for what you know is meaningful. Don't stick up for your self centered attitude. Okay. So anyway, by the force of familiarity, then you know we can change it from just this mind that's always thinking, "I want, I need, I should have." That's kind of our mantra, isn't it? I want, I need, I should have, the world owes it to me. Okay, that that's our four immeasurables. <laughs> I want, I need, I should have the world owes it to me. Mm, four of them, yeah. We we have that. We don't, we are so familiar with it, we don't even need to recite it. Yeah? It's just our way of being. What we want to do is get the actual form immeasurables familiarized in our mind in the same way so that they become so much a part of us that, you know, automatically may... All sentient beings have happiness and its causes. May all sentient beings have su- be free of suffering and its causes. May all sentient beings never be separated from sorrowless bliss. May all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger. So that those four thoughts are in our heart and we operate from those four immeasurables instead of operate, you know, from I want, I need, I deserve, you know, give it to me. Yeah. Okay, so um, now you might ask, well, what's the difference between equanimity, you know, and equalizing? Yeah, so um equanimity is actually a meditation that we do before we do either one of the two ways for developing bodhicitta, before we do the seven-point cause and effect instruction, and before we do the equalizing, exchanging self and others instruction. So it's a preliminary meditation. Actually, as it's um, uh, given in um, in the Lam Rim, Tsongkhapa describes it as equalizing friend and enemy. Yeah. I um, put in stranger, too. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, and you corrected me when we were going through (laughs) this. I remember that. (laughs) Yeah. Because Tsongkhapa says it's just friend and enemy. I put in stranger because, and I was thinking about that, you know, why wasn't isn't it in friend in, uh, in equal um, equanimity, and I was thinking, you know, in ancient India, yeah, it, the communities were very small and everybody knew everybody. There weren't a lot of strangers in the village, you know, in the villages of, of in ancient times. There was a much lower population, smaller communities. Everybody knew each other yeah so people were pretty much either a friend or an enemy probably not so many strangers unless you got invaded yeah by some other force in which case they stopped being strangers and they became enemies but now in modern culture we have a lot of strangers don't we yeah we have more strangers than we have friends and enemies you just go walk down a street in, you know, in any town, any city. We, you know, most of the people are people we don't know. Yeah. So I personally feel it's important to in- include them. Excuse me, Jay Um You know, in, in our meditations, so that there, there's some equanimity. Yeah. So in the the equanimity meditation. We're focused on friend, enemy, and stranger, and equalizing, um, you know, having an equanimous attitude towards them so that we're free from bias, yeah, so we're not attached to our friends and relatives, we don't have hostility towards enemies, and we aren't apathetic towards strangers. So, the purpose of the... Uh Equanimity meditation is to deal with those three emotions, okay, the attachment, the antipathy, and the apathy, yeah, the three a's yeah, and to to have a sense of equanimity equanim equilibrium, so we aren't going up and down in relationship to all the different people we meet. Oh, I like that person. I feel good. Oh, I have to be with that person. Yuck. Oh, that person's a stranger. Just get them out of my way. Yeah, that's how we are, isn't it? You know, our yo-yo mind all day long. So uh, developing some sense of, you know, um, all these people are valuable, you know, and nobody is inherently a friend, inherently an enemy, inherently a stranger, you know. And so in this re- meditation, you really meditate on how these relationships change all the time. You know, they change definitely from one life to the next. But even within one lifetime, yeah, our who's our friend, who's our enemy, who's a stranger, it changes so much, yeah. I mean, I think back to first grade. I don't know any of the people now who I knew in first grade. So my friends and enemies in first grade are all now strangers. People who were strangers when I was in first grade, some of them have become friends. Some of them I don't like. And some of them most of them are remain strangers yeah and so just in this lifetime how we feel about somebody is uh, you know it's it's like a flag in the wind it's like fluttering all the time because our mind is always assessing are they nice to me or are they mean to me if you're nice to me you're my friend if you're mean to me I can't stand you, yeah? And and we're doing this all day long, yeah? And then we try and structure our lives so that we're around all the people we like and we're not around the people who, you know, we don't like. And the strangers, okay, I can w- wiggle my way around them most of the time unless I'm in line for something Then strangers can easily become enemies. The strangers in front of me, strangers behind me, they're okay. Strangers in front of me, why are you taking so long? Yeah, I want to get to the checkout counter. I'm on, on hold in this call. You know, I'm calling the hospital to make an appointment or the doctor to make an appointment. I've been on hold five minutes. Who is on the other line with the receptionist? They are taking too long. I don't know who they are, but they need to get their business done with because I've been waiting five whole minutes on hold with this awful music. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is us, isn't it? We don't think, oh, how nice that the receptionist is talking to somebody else and fulfilling their needs and helping them get the appointments they need to solve their health. We just think of, you know, I've been waiting online five minutes. Yeah. And if they would only stop this awful music. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, equalize uh, equanimity, equilibrium is, um, or the equanimity meditation is equalizing friend, enemy, and stranger. Yeah. And so here, you know, the main method is by seeing that none of these relationships are permanent, they change all the time, they change from one minute to the next minute. Yeah. When when you're in food line and you have a special diet and somebody says, oh, I cooked something specially for you, then you think, oh, that person's my friend. But then you get to that special dish and it's empty. Somebody else ate it. And then the person who cooked it for you has become an enemy because they didn't cook enough. okay. But then the person you don't like, yeah, the person who didn't comment on how wonderfully you set up the altar, who you can't stand because they didn't notice what you did, you know, they're cooking that day, and they cook exactly what you like. And it's like, oh, now that has become a friend. So I know I'm giving r- ridiculous examples, but they're not ridiculous, are they? If we judge people over these tiny, tiny things. So what are we going to do when there's big things? Yeah. When people in a, do something that impacts us in a big way, then we totally go ballistic. Don't we? We're angry. We're depressed. We're, yeah. And, and you know, the friend, enemy, stranger, everything is changing all the time. And oh, I just want everybody to be my friend. Why can't they all be nice to me? You know, we don't at the, ask the question, why can't I be nice to all them? We don't ask that question. Yeah, how can I be nice to them? We ask the question, why can't they be nice to me? It's true, isn't it? You know, and when you see it, I mean, our samsaric situation is totally pathetic. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and this is why His Holiness so often in Dharma talks, when he talks about benefiting others, as an antidote to low self-esteem as an antidote to negative self-talk. He talks about benefiting others, cherishing others, you know? And we respond when he says that. But but first I have to love myself before I can love others. That's what we say, isn't it, you know? Yes, yes, it's good. I want to develop loving others, but first I have to love myself. So, you know, I want to go buy myself a non-calorie hot fudge sundae that's going to make me happy So to show how much I love myself. That's not showing how you love yourself. That's making yourself unhealthy. (laughs) Yeah, when you look at it, it's a way of inflicting pain on yourself, isn't it? Yeah, but we don't look at it that way. That Hot Fudge Sunday has happiness inside of it. Okay, so, you know, we're, we have to see, I mean, our mind is so fickle. Yeah, it's so fickle and changeable. You know, who we like, who we don't like, who we approve of, who we don't approve of. Yeah. So the equanimity is getting us over that hump so that we can look at every sentient being and see, you know, they are all worthy of respect. We don't just say, oh, well, I don't have attachment, anger, and aversion anymore towards anybody, you know. I'm sorry, attachment, uh, antipathy, and apathy towards anybody anymore. That's not the goal of equanimity. Yeah. Oh, I'm free of attachment. I'm free of antipathy. I'm free of of uh, uh, you know apathy. I just sit there all day, saying doesn't matter to me. I don't like this. I don't like that. You know. Some people think the reason i'm stressing this is because some people think that they're afraid to do this meditation because they 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 think that if they give up attachment and aversion and then they're going to become totally apathetic and you know i don't care about anybody anymore okay i don't think that is what the buddha intended from the the equanimity meditation it's not to get us all into a state of apathetic detachment. Okay, I don't want to help you anymore. I don't want to harm you anymore. I just sit there, you know, bumping a log. Okay, no, that's not where we want to get to. Okay, this meditation, we don't stop with it. It's a preparation that then takes us into seeing the kindness of others and seeing their dukkha and samsara and generating compassion. So it's a meditation that sets the stage for what is going to follow. We don't just go into apathy. Okay, is this making some sense to people? Yeah, because I get this question a lot. When you talk about uh, abandoning attachment and uh, and aversion, then people, you know, whether it's towards people or possessions, then people say, "Oh, do you mean we just don't care about anything?" No, that's not <laughs> what we're getting at. The opposite, you know, it's we we clear the dirt away. The dirt is the attachment. Antipathy and, and apathy, we clear that dirt away, and then we use that that openness to generate genuine love and compassion for sentient beings, you know, and the great resolve and bodhicitta. Okay. So we have a few minutes for questions and maybe answers. And comments, and then next time we'll get into. Uh, it's a nine-point meditation that is really spectacular, according to what my opinion. Yeah. So you know what I think is, is well. My opinion is always right. Yeah. But uh, no, this one is inherently
1: a spectacular meditation. Okay. Comments, questions, whatever. Two weeks ago, you gave us the homework of spending some time looking back in our life to early childhood to take a look at, you know, what we wanted. And I could hardly get going on this. I mean, I made some headway because it's so vast. So the first example that came to mind was, you know, when you grew up in a little town, um, the Sears catalog, the Christmas catalog would come out. Before Halloween. And there are no stores that you would go into in a little small town that you would have craving. Well, there's one store and they had cowboy boots. But, you know, the Sears catalog, my siblings and I would fight over this, you know, to get the first dibs on, we'd check off things and we'd circle things. And, you know, by December 1st, this, this catalog would be in tatters. It was just this constant mind of looking at what would make me, this little child happy. And so that orientation just never stopped. It continued to grow, and it was very alarming to see just the beginning depths of this craving that the whole world is involved in and we're just encouraged to do, even as little children. Right. And
0: our economy depends on it. If we don't have craving, the economy is going down, and that's what everybody's afraid of is when the economy isn't doing well so that's why after 911 our what the president told us to do as patriotic americans was not only be angry at the people who bombed the world trade center but go out and buy things that was patriotism because it keeps the economy strong Anybody remember that? Yeah, go out and buy things. Three, you know, all these people died and we're supposed to go out and buy stuff.
1: And then our poor parents try to figure out which one of those things that have been circled multiple times is <laughs> what is really going to make us happy, so then they, you know, they don't have much money, so they get one of those things and then buy, you know, an hour after opening the gift. <laughs> we're all on to something else <laughs> or outside building a snow fort, you know? I think it's just... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I want this so bad. I want this so bad.
0: Then you get it, and then it's boring. Yeah. Other comments and questions? Yeah.
2: I think that... Um, the addiction to, to needing it to have the attachment in the mind, the version in the mind, I get I so scared. I'm one of those people that says, if I don't have these feelings, I'm nobody. Who, who am I? Who am I? And that there's this yeah. real kind of junky mind in there, even though I'm unhappy a lot of the times when I have my attachment meant and my aversion arises, there is such a sense of this is how I exist. This is who I am. And I get scared when we start talking about relinquishing our craving and our our feelings to be right, because I've got myself hugely invested. Yeah, in the yo-yo. The yo-yo gives me some life. Yeah, you know the volatility gives me some life. The unpredictability the unpredictability of my own emotions gives me an existence. Yeah, and it just scares the heck out of me.
0: Yeah. Because I think our deepest fear is that we're going to go out of existence, that we don't exist or we do exist, but our existence is going to stop. And all this stuff gives, you know, it, I have attachment, I have aversion, I'm jealousy, I'm arrogant, whatever it is. I'm alive, I exist you know i think it really comes down to that and a terrible fear of not existing yeah so at death you know that fear arises what do we do i want another body i want another samsaric life mm. yeah so we don't think, well, you know, I can, I can stay alive, but in a very different way, without this big I, you know, I can be alive with the mind of bodhicitta, I can be alive with the mind of wisdom, you know, but the I is going to look a whole lot different <laughs> to us, yeah at that point, because we'll realize what a a hallucination it is, what we're holding to now. And when I see the days where
2: I actually have the more virtue in my mind, there's a real tug of war going on. It's almost mm. like there's a withdrawal aspect of the afflicted states of mind when I see that the virtue really does make me much happier. <laughs> but boy, there's this hook back there that wants to, Disrupt that, yeah, and convince me that that's that's a low grade kind of happiness. That virtuous stuff is just like not a big winner. Yeah. So there's there's a tug of war that goes on. The more that my virtue increases, and the habit is still really strong. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because I know exactly what you're talking about. Because when you get aggravated, frustrated, and angry, the force the the feeling of "I exist" is much stronger than when you do virtue. Yeah, and you know we we are addicted to that feeling of "I," and anger just you know reinforces it. I exist because I am angry. Yeah. It's crazy, and yet we're miserable when we're angry, aren't we? We're totally miserable.
3: I want to share a story about a teaching that you probably don't, I know you don't remember, but you don't know how meaningful it was, Um, that even the stupidest things that reinforce who we think we are, because there was a time when I had really cleaned my desk, I thought quite well, and you came in and said, I'd like for you to clean your desk. (laughs) And I I don't think I was nasty in my pushback this time. I often am, have been. Um, but I did say, I really have done my best. Can you show me what you would like for me to do? And then you started by taking, like, I would take this off the wall, and all my little uh, post-it notes of my Dharma sayings started to come down. And then my little thing that reminded me of this came down, and this came down, and I was getting more and more deflated, and more and more deflated, and... Then I thanked you, and you went away. I mean, you weren't nasty about it. You were just showing me what would be clean. And I was just, like, devastated. And it took me a long time to think about why is this so painful, and it's because all of these objects on the wall, all these little notes, all of these little post-its were expressions of who I am. So it's not even the feeling thing. It's the stupid post-it. Right, that, that we use again and again and again to reinforce it. It was a powerful teaching. I appreciated it a lot. And I appreciated your help. Uh, I should go look at your desk now. Yeah, well, <laughs> the post its are actually now on my computer desktop. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: okay, so let's just dedicate.